and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Guy Rube, Professor of Law at the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. We will discuss his article, Owning Nothingness, Between the Legal and the Social Norms of the Art World, which will be published in the Brigham Young University Law Review. So welcome back to the show, Guy. Hey, Brian. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Always a pleasure. I always love having you on the program. Um, It was great having you on many, many episodes ago, and I'm really glad to have you back with this paper, which uh, I totally adore. And, you know, I've kind of seen it, seen it at many stages, and I love the concept and uh, the execution is even better. So congrats. And it was really a lot of fun to read it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I like the concept <laughs> and the conceptual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so the entire paper is is really about conceptual art, how we ought to think about conceptual art as kind of copyright scholars and how the market for conceptual art works or doesn't work or how it exists in the first place. But for listeners who might not necessarily be all that steeped in the contemporary art world, I mean, I wonder if you could just start by kind of talking a little bit about what conceptual art is and maybe giving some examples of particular works of conceptual art just to kind of situate people in understanding the nature of the kind of art practice that you're discussing in the paper. Yes, thanks. Uh, so conceptual art is sort of the, my way to enter this in big discussion about social norms. And it, it's an important way, uh, an important movement within the art world. And one of the challenging things about conceptual art is that there is no really good, easy definition of conceptual art. In fact, this is one of the points of conceptual artists. Uh, They don't want to be put in a box. Their entire point is, we don't want to be in that box. We want everything to be our box. So that's great for them, but it makes it easy, uh, make it more challenging to uh, research what they are doing. So I'll try with that. So conceptual art is the idea of creating art about art. And the idea is that the art or the creation that the author, uh, the artist is making is just an idea or a concept. And and that's where the creativity is. So if you think about uh, Van Gogh, for example, who was absolutely not a conceptual artist, think about Starry Night, okay? So the idea there is sort of... uh, Fine. I mean, it's not the most original idea, right? To 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 paint a night over a village. All right, but but it's a, an amazing work of art because it's executed so well. Or a Rembrandt uh, portrait. Those are even less creative. I mean, the, the idea. Well, it's a portrait of a, of an old man. Whatever. But it's executed really, really, really well in an interesting way. Uh, conceptual art is sort of the opposite. The idea is we take a very creative idea and the idea has a lot of symbolism attached to it. I'll give a few examples in a second. Although the execution might be in many, many cases very, very uh, simple. So an example, this is the example that I use throughout the paper is a a series of works or they're not related. So there are many, many works by a conceptual artist, not... uh, uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres, 
most of those work are from the 80s and the 90s. He passed away uh, from AIDS in the mid-90s. So, and especially I'm talking about his candy-based work. So think about the work uh, in which you go to a museum and you see a pile of candy on the floor. It's weight 175 pounds. At least it weighed that in the morning. And every person who visited the museum can take one piece of candy and eat it. Okay? Or, or do whatever the, he or she wants to do with it. Or not. They don't have to take the candy. Uh, by the end of the day, the uh, artwork is uh, weightless. It might be gone completely. It might be half gone. And the museum will replenish it. So there will be the next morning, there will be 175 pounds of candy. Now, what's going on here? Why is this art? So if you start to listen to the story, you suddenly see that actually it is. It's a really smart, smart idea uh, in uh, the sense that 175 pounds was the weight of his partner, Ross, uh, when he was healthy. His partner passed of AIDS, AIDS in 1991. And, they did, and then you can see a lot of symbolism there, right? Maybe the candy represent how sweet their life was and the fact that people take this candy means that his body is dwindling as he became sicker and sicker. And uh, maybe the artist is telling us, look how you, the American society, is all part of uh, killing the LGBTQ community uh, by being indifferent to the AIDS epidemic. And uh, maybe the replenishing is lot of a positive message of uh, the circle of life and that. You can find a lot of symbolism in it. But the idea is that the, the, the work is the idea. Felix Gonzalez Torres did not create anything physical. It's not like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Van Gogh working for weeks on making the drawing right or making every brush draw in a very artistic way that I absolutely cannot. I can't buy 175 pounds of candy and put them on the floor. So the execution is so trivial that I can do it, right? Uh, but uh, that's not the point. The point is the idea. The point is the like wait, what, this is why it's conceptual. The concept of uh, doing it. Uh, another work he has is like two clock. It's called Perfect Cloud. You put two clocks that are perfectly synchronized, one next to the other, and them on the wall. I thought it's brilliant, right? Like here is two people move in sync with one another, but sometimes they are not fully in sync and they need to be fixed and they move on. So uh, those are the sim- those ideas. That in many cases, are simple. Uh, and uh, the execution is might be, but they are very uh, simple to execute. They are very creative and they have a lot of symbolism and it also pushes our understanding of what is art. So it's like art maybe is not what you think is art, which is a, a big, the conceptual art is one of the movements in the last 100 years that really pushes us to redefine or rethink what is art, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, so why is it then that conceptual art is a problem from a copyright perspective? I mean, sort of copyright at least purports to describe the way we think about authorship. Why is conceptual art difficult for copyright law to sort of conceptualize within the framework we've established to kind of legally think about who is an author and how you own a work of authorship? Yeah, the conceptualization of conceptual art. Uh, Yes, it doesn't fit well. That's the main problem of conceptual art. 
So in order to understand why it doesn't fit, we need to say a few words how normally we think about art and how normally copyright law and personal property law uh, promotes creativity. So we promote creativity with two regimes. One is personal property and the other one is copyright. Personal property means that when you create something, you can sell it, right? Van Gogh created a painting, he can sell it. I mean, he didn't do well financially on the market, but modern artists can sell their work. So that's personal property rights. In addition, they get copyright for the uh, recreation, reproduction of their work. So when I uh, buy either a piece of visual art or a book or a piece of or a music uh, uh, or a, a, a movie, I cannot reproduce it without a license from the copyright owner, and that's the art of copyright law. And the idea is that for some artists, uh, the ability to sell the initial work is very, very valuable, and this is how they make most of their income. So vi- most visual artists, traditional visual artists did that. I, create a scu- I created a sculpture. I sell the sculpture. Everybody's happy. I mean, I got my money. The seller got uh, the work. Uh, other uh, artists, uh, uh, authors, for example, of books, they don't sell so much the original copy, but they sell uh, they sell copies of the original manuscript, right? So every time you buy a copy, you need to pay them something, and that's how the publisher is being paid, and they get a chunk of that payment. So we have those two systems. Conceptual art doesn't work with neither of those systems, and, and Let's use Felix Gondales' work as an example, right? There is no physical object. It didn't create. Art historians call it dematerialization of the art. There is no material that is being created. So if you create, if your creating is, is an idea, right? Whether it's the idea of putting candies on the floor or putting two clocks one next to the other, well, that's just an idea. There's no physical object to sell. I can take the idea and run away with it. That's, that's the entire point of ideas. Ideas are also not protected by copyright. We can copy ideas. It's really important concept in copyright law. The execution of ideas is protected by copyright, but the idea themselves are not. So the idea of you know a, a war between good and bad magicians, a, while uh, the, uh, there is a young guy, young person who is learning the way of the way of the art of the force, while there is an old uh, master who might fight him to death. All right, that's an idea. That's great. I can take this idea. You know, uh, Star Wars has this idea, and Harry Potter has that idea, and we can all use this idea. And if I have an, another idea to create a similar book, I can run away with that. I'm allowed to do that, but not the expression. I cannot create copies of Star Wars, and I cannot create copies of Harry Potter without the license. In conceptual art, that's all there is there, right? The only thing that is there is the idea. So if I'm allowed to freely copy the idea, which copyright law tells me I'm allowed to do, then what is left for me as, as a creator? If Philip Gondales Torres does not create any physical objects, so he has no property rights, physical property rights, and ideas are free to copy, which they are, with some restrictions that are irrelevant to in this case, then he gets nothing. He just has nothing. This is why I call it nothingness, right? From a legal perspective, what Philip Gonzalez Torres created and conceptual artists generally create is nothing. It's an idea.
and ID mm. are not subject to legal rights. Mm. Well, this sounds great. So, you know, Felix Gonzalez Torres, super interesting artist. I'm also a big fan. If I want to own a Felix Gonzalez Torres work, then I can just create one and I own one, right? Or, or not? That I think. All right. That that's the heart of the argument, right? Uh, the short answer is yes. Well, yes and no. Uh, depending, it depends. Like every every law school answer, I think, right? Uh, from a legal perspective, the answer is yes. Why not? Right? I can buy one other. No one can tell me I cannot buy one hundred seventy-five pounds of candy and put it on the floor. And this is not just in my house. I can do it in a public space. I can rent a, a gallery and uh, do exactly that and say this is like a Felix Gonzalez Torres because it's as Felix Gonzalez Torres as any other Felix Gonzalez Torres. So that's the legal answer. But here comes the social norms and really change it. No museum in the world will ever allow me to do that. And no gallery. I couldn't find one person in the art industry that would say that this is okay. If they do that, they call it piracy <laughs> or a forgery. And this is why I started this work when I, I saw a Felix Gonzalez work in a museum. And, you know, like every copyright, <laughs> I think, you know, we, we lawyers or so, law professors are sometimes slightly weird in that respect. I read contracts. I read boilerplate agreements sometimes just for the heck of it. And so when I go to a museum, I sometimes read the label very carefully just for the heck of it to see what's going on there. And it says, on loan from a Museum of Modern Art in New York. And I said, what do you mean on loan? What is on loan? What they own, what those conversations with uh, those museum administrators and gallery owners and that says that there is a concept of ownership that lives within the social norms of the artwork. So for the artwork perspective, you absolutely need to buy the basically a license, but it's not a license in the legal sense because a license is a legal sense attached to a legal right. But it's a sort of a license, a sort of permission and sort of ownership to use the work. And the person to, set, to buy it from is Felix Gonzalez-Torres. So when Felix Gonzalez-Torres first created this idea of 175 pounds of candies, on the museum floor to represent his uh, deceased uh, partner, someone had to buy it from him. Someone had to pay money, actually, and good money, to buy it from him. And that someone, once purchased that, now has what the art world will consider property right over that, which means that if, Brian, if you own a gallery and you want to present it and you decide to subject yourself to those, to those social norms, which everybody in the industry does, means that you need to speak with that person and ask for their permission. Right now, for example, that work is owned by, or at least uh, in possession of, which is a weird concept, of the uh, Art Institute in Chicago. So if you want to present it in your uh, gallery, Brian, that you absolutely can. Talk with the Art Institute in Chicago and they will, quote-unquote, lend you the, the, the uh, work, which is so weird, they will have a lending agreement in which they will talk about as if they are lending you any physical object. But there is no physical object. At the end of this agreement, you will sign the lending agreement with the Art Institute of Chicago if they agree to lend it to you. And from that point on, you are allowed 
according to the norm of the art world. Again, as, as a legal matter, you were always allowed, but now, according to the social norm of the art world, you are allowed to present the work in your uh, gallery. By the way, there will probably be some string attached. For example, they will want you to write next to the work, copyright, Felix Gondales uh, Torres Foundation. Again, why? That's what they do. There is no copyright because it's an ID. But you will write in your gallery, it is protected by copyright because that will be a requirement of the Art Institute of Chicago for them to give you that uh, piece of art. So they created this uh, false, uh, uh, not false, but artificial scarcity, right? In theory, as far as the law is concerned, everybody can create a Felix Gondales Torres. Just, just do it. Uh, but as a practical matter, that's a big no-no in the art world. And no one will do it. So there is only one work of Felix Gonzalez Torres of that kind. And at any given moment, the artwork can tell you where the work is. Although the work is, is just an ID, the ID is permanently owed at the Art Institute of Chicago, unless it's right now on loan to someone. So we are trading on basically the right to execute an idea. Which is, I think it's, it's completely, it's fascinating, but it, and it's completely non-legal in any legal, normal sense of the word. So as a practical matter, imagine I'm an art collector and I want to quote unquote buy a work of conceptual art. Like what happens? What do I do? What do I get? And is it the same for every artist or is it kind of, does it depend on how a particular artist kind of characterizes or conceptualizes or thinks about the nature of the work that they're creating and selling? Yes. So, uh, so I think there is a sort of a general trend, what you do, and then there is a lot of nuances at the margin. Uh, well, you can't buy it for a museum because museums don't sell their art. Uh, you know that. You write about that. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, if, if it is on the market, so let's say it's a modern, is a conceptual artist that is creating right now, these days, or someone who bought from the conceptual artist that want to put it on sale, it would be on sale like any piece of art. Sotheby's and, Christ, and Christie's uh, are a very dominant player in this area. So you go to an auction house, and you auction on those works, or you go individually to the galleries that is representing this artist, and you ask to purchase the work. You will pay a FT sum for it, right? Felix Gondales' work right now are being sold for millions and millions of dollars. Uh, there is a museum in Arkansas who buy, in 2015, buy, bought one of those work for about $8 million, uh, candy work. Uh, so you will pay. Once you pay, okay, what do you get? So uh, that slightly varies, but in many cases, not all, you will get a certificate of authenticity. A piece of paper that sometimes the artist will sign, sometimes not, that it's sometimes they will want you to sign, although that's slightly less uh, common, that will say, the work is now yours. You can present it. And that piece of paper will be in your safe, uh, if, if, if it exists, there are work of conceptual art that do not have certificate of authenticity and 
basically it's yours because everybody else respect everybody else in this world respects the fact that it's yours again in many cases you will have a piece of document a piece of paper that says this is yours and if you want to sell it to other people again which museum don't do so uh, regularly you will transfer that uh, piece of paper but You know, as part of this work, I spoke with many, many of, many, many uh, curators and, and, and people who work in this industry. And they have a mixed feeling whether is this certificate their work? And many of them say, no, no, no. Even if we lose the certificate, the work is still ours. The right to present the work is ours because everybody in the industry knows that we purchase it. And sometimes you can get even a replacement certificate from, you know, the artist. Sometimes you cannot. This is, this is where artists really differ from one another. Artists also differ from one another about, all right, now I have the certificate. Now let's say I want to actually do the work. We call it inst- installing the work. We want to have an installment of the work. What does that mean? Again, there is a world of difference here. Some artists, Philip Gonzalez Torres' approach was do whatever you want. I have, you have my instructions. Just, just do them, okay? And use your creativity to do that. So, for example, how do you put those 175 pounds of candies on the floor? It's your choice. You want to put it in a square, put it in a square. You want to put it in a pyramid, do it in a pyramid. You want to put the candy along the stairs of your museum, which I've heard that someone has done, although I didn't see the picture of that. You can do that. He's fine with that. Other artists like Solovit, for example, another famous conceptual artist, actually have, also have a set of instructions But they are pretty strict about how you execute those instructions. And the artwork would respect that. So, for example, in many cases, they will require, I mean, sort of he died, but in his lifetime, he, usually, he sometimes would execute it himself or as the group of people who work with him and says, you know, Brian, you own my work now, but my work is, let's say, a drawing on a wall. If you want to create this drawing, pay me. you would need to pay me or one of my... entourage so to speak pay us and it's actually thousands of dollars and we'll come and draw it on your wall and if you ask him okay what if I draw it myself said no no now it's not an authentic Levite anymore no it's like so you, you bought the work with a huge string attached to it and even to this day there were some creators that told me the Levite uh, people and he died years ago still have a list of people who are authorized to execute the work so if I'm a museum and I own the work or I borrow the work And I want to put it on the wall, I need to call one of his people, pay them thousands of dollars, and they will put it on the wall for me. So uh, it really varies, right? But I, I thought it was fascinating that you bought something that is basically a piece of paper, if at all, and in some cases you can't use it unless you have to speak with the artist or their people again. In some cases, again, this, is, this varies, you know, uh, but I thought, oh, fascinating. Maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of what it means to own something like this, because I mean, like there seems like there's a real tension here in the sense that, like you say, I mean, if I wanted to, I could create a Felix Gonzalez Torres work in my living room and no one legally could say it isn't a Felix Gonzalez Torres work because, I mean, I can execute something according to his instructions, which... sound pretty flexible <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, right? Um, and I mean, available. you can find them online. Yeah, and so, I mean, how does that work? Like, what does it mean 
to say that I would own something like that. How, if at all, can people sort of enforce that kind of ownership? And, and I guess one thing I'm really interested in is like when you went and talked to people about this question that you had in the art world, how did they respond to the questions that you asked them about how they conceptualized ownership and what they were buying? Yeah, there's a lot of fascinating things there. So what does it, first of all, let's say, what does it mean? What do you get? You get the approval of the art world to present it in your gallery or museum. That's what you get. That's it. Uh, another way to look at it, what happens if you do it without this approval, right? Uh, so this is interesting because when I ask my, uh, the people I spoke with, they could not even phantom. I mean, the que- and some of them didn't understand the question, right? said, what do you mean? I said, go to the store, buy one other than... I mean, like, I had to explain to them sometimes, like, you know, you claim to a kid, right? And those are very intelligent people, don't get me wrong, right? Uh, Because it's completely out of the realm of possibility to many of them. Uh, As a practical matter, I asked them, okay, what would happen if you do that? And they all told me, we never heard of anyone do it. And I said, okay, when I push, 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 I said, okay, but what would happen? said... No one will ever speak with us. This is this will be considered forgery, and forgery is a big no-no in the art world, right? And so we just consider a, a pirate piracy. So no, we will be outcast, and the museum will be outcast. And most of them also see it as a moral issue. So it's immoral to do it. Although I, I had one curator I spoke with who says, "Yeah, I understand." When I pushed again, he also didn't at first think that it's even possible. But when I pushed him, he said. Yeah, I guess I can do it. And I said, and I asked him, do you think it's wrong? He said, I don't think it's wrong. I said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> I really tried to push some of them to try to do that. And I said, that would be fun. But uh, he said, I would never do that. And, and I said, why? He said, this is the end of our, my museum. He is actually a curator in a pretty mid-sized museum. Okay, it's not like a tiny gallery. He said, this is the end of my museum. If I ever do that, that's what he thought. You know, no one tried, actually, right? He said, no one will speak to me. And, you know, boring and lending artwork is the core of what museums do and do with one another, right? You also write about the social norm of this industry. You know, they, they work together with one another as a regular thing. That's what binds them together. And as soon as they do that, they said, that's it. We are done. No, work, no museum will ever bore us work. No artist will ever work with us. We, we will be dead in the water, okay? So that's what... Uh, that's how uh, they perceive it. And this is why when you speak with them, the, the, the idea of doing it is sort of so foreign to them. And so to many of them, when I told them, you know, this is not how the legal system works, that was also sort of news to them or they never thought about that. It's interesting because while I keep saying that this is not how the legal system works, those are social norms, they use legal terminology. To do that, I told you, with Ibrahim, if you ever go to the uh, uh, Art Institute in Chicago and get there to lend you, quote-unquote, that Philip Gonzalez-Torres work, they will ask you to put a copyright notice next to it, right? Now, if you are, now you're a law professor and copyright expert, so you know that that's complete nonsense. But if you are a curator, in many cases, you don't even know that what you put there is complete nonsense, right? You're putting a copyright notice to something that's not protected by copyright. In many cases, the copyright notice that they will ask you to do does it even comply with the requirement of a copyright notice if it were protected by copyright? 
So, but you do put the sea surrounded by a cycle, but you know, you surround the sea with the cycle and put a Philippe Nodale Stories Foundation there. Uh, so you create this elo of legality around something that works actually outside of the legal system. So for many of them, uh, they were really fascinated by that and they were really big news for them when I told them, you know, this stuff is not protected by copyright, right? And for some of them, it was completely new. Some of them, you know, knows a bit, a bit of copyright, sort of told me, you know, that they pause and then they look at me for like, like 10 seconds and says, you know, I never thought of that. You know, those are people who've been working in museum for years and years and years and said, well, we never thought about that. This is not how we operate. Yeah, I understand that now you tell me. I, so some of them knew that ideas are not protected by copyright. I mean, it's interesting. The Copyright Act in the provision, it's section one of to be of the Copyright Act, there's all the list of stuff that's not protected by copyright. Ideas mentioned them and concept. The word concept is actually mentioned there. It's one of the thin method and other stuff that's not protected by copyright. So for them, it was, it was fascinating for them how they think, I don't think most of them, they, they comply with the social norms and they know and they are training the social norms so much that they don't think about how we can violate the social norm, which is fascinating in a world that is all about breaking the concept, right? The, the conceptual art is all about, I want to be outside of the box. But actually the people who are facilitating this industry right now, the curators, are working inside the box of their social norms, right? Within that box, they do whatever they want, but they will not step outside of the box and present the work without a authorization. So they also have a box. And uh, so, yeah, so they, they, don't, they don't even think, of, most of them don't even think about the possibility of getting inside the box. And they don't, and even if they, I, force, I force them to think about that, they have no intention of doing it. Right. When I started this project, a fun thing I thought, and maybe I'll still do it one day. I mean, you know, uh, if I'm brave enough, you know, rent a space. In, I mean, when we are back uh, to interacting physically with one another, rent a space, you know, uh, and just do, here are all the work of, let's say, Felix Gonzalez stories for the sake of argument. Here are all the work of Felix Gonzalez stories right there. None of them is authorized, right? And say, and open it to the people, right? Open it to the public. Say, I'm like uh, the uh, uh, Guy Rube unauthorized museum of Philip Gonzalez stories. And uh, <laughs> wouldn't that be exciting, right? And I could do that. <laughs> now, <laughs> I need a big insurance. I need a big insurance before I do that, right? Because they will sue me. Although they don't have a cause of action, but yeah, they will try. <laughs> I'm on board. I think we should do it. I mean, so one of one of one of the things that I really like about this is that there's a kind of tension between the premise of conceptual art and the idea of kind of dematerializing art and sort of making art that is outside the sort of bounds of kind of physical objects and commerce and copyright and the way that the market seems to, or the art market seems to have in a sense, like recuperated this work and brought it back within the fold. Like how does that function? And is there like a tension with the kind of premise of what these artists are doing in the first place? I never thought about that in, in, in that respect. It's really, it, it's really, really a good question. Really interesting. 
I think there is. I, I don't think it bothers them very much, but you're absolutely right, right? I mean, we created a world that's supposed to be unphysical, right? Uh, you know, but then we uh, create limitation on it. Now, they were aware of that. You know, Felix Gonzalez Torres in his lifetime was well aware of the economics of his work. It's not like, uh, you know, sometimes we like to think about artists as, oh, you know, the romantic notion of artists. I'm just, you know, a torment artist starving for, for bread who create out of my, uh, I have an inside voice that makes me create and I don't care about money or legal right or property right. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> I have a history of being skeptical of that in my other works, including the one we talked about last time, that being slightly skeptical of those romantic notions. And I think it's true here also, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not doubting that they are very creative people and they have actually real, real, real passion for their art. And, and they, they, are, they, they are not just creating it just for the sake of money, fine. But I think many of them are are aware of that. Many of them saw, I mean, practically all of them, sold de facto property rights in the work. So you're absolutely right that they are both don't want to create physical objects sort of to run away from the concept, oh, you don't put me in that. I'm not confined to you. what your art is. So there is uh, this great citation, and I, I, uh, I'm blacking out on, on the artist. It's in the paper that says, if you want to talk about a painting, so you want to talk about the painting, you're already limiting me because I don't want my art to be limiting to painting and sculpture. Art is broader than that. You can't even tell me that my art is a painting. Uh, you think that painting is a broad concept. It's not broad enough for me. Okay. It needs to be broader than that. You're already limiting me when you talk to me, when you tell me about, oh, you're, you're a painter or you're a sculptor. No, no, no. I'm an artist. I, I jump all those boxes. You can't you can't just limit me in that way. And so I think was that was that was that was that Henry Flint? Maybe? No, 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 no. Henry Flint was the, the first one. It, I, I'll, I'll find. I'll remember his name. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 I say, okay, fine. And so the idea of I, I'm not even creating a piece of work is part of that. But on the other hand. When it comes to how I commercialize my work, you are you are trying to do exactly what Van Gogh was doing, or I mean, or the more traditional Rembrandt was doing, right? <laughs> you still want to sell your one copy of the work to one buyer for as much as you can get for it. So you didn't, you know, in some respect, you want to be free from the shackles of the old world, but in another respect, you exactly play according to the drum that uh, artists were used to for uh, centuries, right? Create a piece of art and sell it. So it's all right. You're not creating a physical object. You create an idea, but you're still selling it. One copy. The scarcity that Rembrandt used or Caravaggio used, you are feeling Gondales Hort and Solevit. You also create scarcity of your work through social norms and you are sort of, you are still... Uh, within that tradition, so I think that 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 is fascinating, and I think they were well aware of that. And I, I yeah, it's, it, I think it's fascinating. Well, so guy, I mean, I, I also kind of wonder from our perspective as copyright scholars, looking at sort of 
not just kind of the subject matter of copyright and how we think about the nature in a kind of ontological sense of what a copyrightable work of authorship is, but even in a more kind of practical sense about sort of what the market for works of authorship does or should or might look like, like what can conceptual art and maybe more importantly, in some ways, the market for conceptual art, tell us about how authorship works in the real world and sort of how markets deal with the idea of creation, authenticity, and ownership. Yeah, authenticity is, is, uh, is one of the most fascinating concepts that I think we, the legal community, not just the legal community, are still struggling to, you know, to fully uh, understand and fully uh, fully con- I, mean, I don't want to conceptualize, right? Fully conceptualize what that means. Uh, I think the art, what, what, the, what the market is showing us here is that they, at least in this, this is at least an example, a thumb on the scale if you want, that the market does not need the law to deal, to, to create a market. The, the market can exist without laws I mean, it's, I'm not saying that laws play no role, right? That would be extreme. But uh, I'm saying that markets have the power and social norms have the power with the market to create an ecosystem that work in some respect outside of the legal system, right? Or for the most part, outside of the legal system. <clears throat> and that, I think, is fascinating. I think there is a fascinating angle to it to uh, compare and contrast it with Vera, the uh, Visual Artist uh, Rights uh, uh, Act, a uh, 1990 act that gives uh, visual artists all those rights in their work, and those rights do not actually uh, completely consistent with what social rights give to artists. So the fact that we have this vast social rights system uh, I, I, makes me wonder why do we need the law, Vera, for example, is a good law that I'm, I, I was, uh, uh, full disclosure, it's not like I came for it as a big Vera believer and now I'm a big Vera skeptical, right? I came to this project with be somewhat a Vera skeptical and now I'm a more, a bigger Vera skeptical, right? Uh, they have all the social norms that give them ton of rights and, and very flexible rights. And so I'm not sure they need another level of legal norms on top of it. So as an IP scholar and a scholar in general, I think one of that those inquiry into the social norm makes us pause and think, does the heavy hammer of legal right, especially property right, and I put intellectual property right within property right here, which is a huge hammer. It's right against the word. It's very strong. <laughs> I think we need to be slightly more modest about it, you know, and use it more carefully. I mean, I'm not saying that it's never needed. That's not, I think, uh, what I'm, I'm, I'm arguing. But I think I'm arguing that we need to be more careful about them. And at least in this field, I think we're good uh, as far as, uh, as we have. Maybe we have too many legal norms out there. Vera is an example. And the market functions well, or at least as well as it would. I mean, 
maybe would we, we would be in a better system in a completely different system you know when everybody used Philip Gonzalez stores without any limitation but that's uh, that's that we can talk about that if you want that that's completely uh, that's a more extreme solution but when I compare what the social norm gave us versus property right property social norm seems to work I, why do we need the legal norms to with all their uh, dead weight laws that they bring with them to uh add another tier to it. Mm. Well, so I mean, Guy, in closing, like the one question that really weighs on me in this paper and honestly in a lot of your other work and around this, these kind of questions in general is sort of like how should we as legal scholars or we as kind of people thinking about how copyright law and ownership uh, in intangible works of authorship, think about how this is happening in practice. And like, should the law accept the social norms created by the art world that sort of create and manage the market in works of conceptual art? Or should the law like break them? Right. I mean, like if the law says you're not allowed to own this, why do we allow people to sort of engage in self-help as it were, to claim ownership of things that are supposed to be in the public domain. Yes, uh, that, that's a fascinating, fascinating topic. Uh, it's complex, right? The relationship between the social norm and the legal norms are really, really, really complex. Uh, one thing I think, <coughs> here's the easy thing I think we need to take away. The easy thing is that you cannot, uh, you know, coming up with legal rules is a form of uh, it's, it's a form of social engineering, right? I know this this phrase has political uh, burden attached to it, but I want to put that aside. The way I see it, and this is maybe my uh, core of coming from law and economics originally, uh, I see law as, uh, ch- as uh, modifying behavior or channeling behavior toward things that we as a society uh, want. Uh, in a very, very broad, uh, abstract sense of the word. And I think engaging in this form of social engineering, you cannot engage in them without taking account of social norms. Uh, and taking account the market also, right? Both of them work in tandem. This is slightly Coase, right? Uh, Coase says, judges think that they make reality. No, they affect reality. The market also works there, right? Uh, so I think we cannot... As, as, as lawyers and legal scholars, one thing that is very clear is that we cannot engage in our small corner of uh, engineering without considering other forces, non-legal forces that work like the market, like the available technology, and like social norms. Larry uh, Lessig wrote about all those forces that work together. Uh, and, and, and work, think about them together. Now, how do they work? I think the interaction with them is, is complex. It's not that the legal system can just necessarily need to take the social norm as a given and just respect them and build the legal system around them. I think there might be a situation in which the legal system might want to break the social norms. It's not easy to do. And I'm not sure this is the perfect example for that. Uh, uh, but I think it's interesting that sometimes legal systems fa- facilitate the uh, social norm, and I think when they do, uh, they uh, 
it's interesting. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's interesting whether they should do that. I'll give you an example. For example, uh, so think about uh, authenticity. If I created, let's say, I take a Picasso, and I create uh, what we would call probably a forgery, and, and that reminds me slightly of your work, Brian, on uh, on on the same top, topic of plagiarism and, and all that. Let's say I take a Picasso, okay. And, and I create the perfect copy. I have a 3D printer. No one will tell the difference. And I present it as a Picasso, okay? And I sell it as a Picasso, okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, Picasso created two works. And maybe I don't tell you that which one of them is authentic. Or maybe I tell you they're both authentic. I just broke ton of laws, okay? It's fraud. And, and, and this is also a criminal. There will be criminal sanction probably... A federal or state law. I, I, I'm in a world of, 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 sea of sea of pain, right? But this is the legal norm facilitating the social norm of authenticity. If I say, oh, I don't care, the legal system can also say, I, I don't care about authenticity. This is as the original Picasso as the other Picasso. And, uh, and, uh, you, and if that's the case, then you can lie about that. But the legal system doesn't, right? So this is the legal system through norms of tort law and criminal law, and you see them in, in, in plagiarism, right? Making it illegal, we are facilitating a certain social norm that we are trying uh, to uh, promote. We don't have to do that, right? Uh, now, going back to my work, I, I'm not sure that we uh, we should break it. It's not easy to break it. Actually, this social norm specifically because there's not a ton of facilitation that go through the legal system. Uh, so we can, I mean, outlaw it, but uh, we can say, tell museum who all get, have public money, you cannot use that that money to buy an ID that is not protected by law, just take it. So we can think about some cre- extreme solutions, but uh, I'm not sure that they are advisable here. I mean, I think the bottom line is this. Those, all those systems, the legal system is just a part of a big puzzle, and when you work on that puzzle, which we usually do, right, legal scholar, like really, really zoom in on that piece of the puzzle, it's really important to keep an eye to the other pieces of the puzzle and how they work together with what you are doing, what they did they have now, and how will they react to your uh, legal norms. We need to think whether those social norms need the legal norms or whether the market needs the legal norm because legal norms usually come with tremendous vagueness and inaccuracy and deadweight loss. So sometimes they are needed, but we shouldn't rush to enact them. Mm. Well, Guy, this has been a really illuminating interview. And as so much of your other work, I really loved and appreciated how this paper made me think about what we're doing when we do copyright law and when we conceptualize copyright law as it as it were and think about it in relation to how people sort of do copyright law or ownership in the world so thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about it oh thank you so much for having me brian and 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 let me conclude by uh, thanking you for having this podcast i think you you provide a really really valuable service to our academic community through this uh, podcast and for your other work also but now I'm talking about this podcast. It's, it's great and it's really valuable and thank you for doing it.
Oh, <laughs> 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 